Welcome to the Rebecca Panapinto Project. Today, I'm very excited to host a very dear friend named Tolga Tarhan. Now, Tolga has more than two decades of experience leading different technology companies. He was an early pioneer of cloud-native thinking, as well as advanced developer and automation-focused workflows and the serverless application development we know in the enterprise today. In 2013, Tolga co-founded Sturdy.Cloud, which was an AWS premier consulting partner. They helped promote these concepts as one of the most innovative AWS partners. And in 2017, Sturdy was acquired by Anika. There, Tolga continued to lead the industry by pushing cloud native concepts into the Fortune 500 and building Anika into the largest cloud-native AWS-focused professional and managed services company worldwide. In 2019, Anika was acquired by Rackspace Technology and Tolga joined the Rackspace executive team as their chief technology officer. There, he helped Rackspace return to the public markets through an IPO. Most recently, Tolga has founded his own company called Kipsy, which is an end-to-end low-code platform designed to build custom vision-enabled apps, all with ease, eliminating complexity, risk, and expense. Tolga also continues to show thought leadership throughout his field through extensive speaking engagements at industry events, conferences, and through educational groups. We had an incredible conversation today, and I'm very excited to introduce you to Tolga's new company called Kipsy. Enjoy the show. Tolga, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. This has been a long time coming, so I'm so excited to have you and so excited to talk about your new company. Thanks. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a fun episode. So Kipsy, Kipsy is a really cool product that you're going to talk all about today, but I want to talk about how we first connected, which was through my life at Anika, which then became Rackspace, where you were the services guy and specifically working heavily on the AWS cloud platform. So back then is actually when I started this podcast. And the whole theme of this podcast has always been digital transformation. And what does digital transformation mean within your business? And as we were talking about that, it was funny and caught me a little off guard, your comments of how much it's changed, even since we knew each other, and we were working together, you know, day in, day out at Rackspace, you know, three-ish years ago. So let's start there by you telling me a little bit more about what you think digital transformation is today and kind of what that genesis has really been over the last three years. Yeah, this is a fascinating topic because like many buzzwords in our industry, um, it, it doesn't have a finite meaning, right? It's, 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 it's changed over time and it means different things to different people. In my career trajectory, I think the first time I could relate to this kind of change is sort of in like 2008 when everything was becoming mobile first. That was like the first modern wave of digital transformation, right? I think prior to that, maybe the adoption of like overall IT systems was kind of a big deal, right? Like kind of before I was big into the um, IT industry, there was kind of prior waves, but the first wave I experienced was this, everything's going mobile now. We're going from web to mobile and we're doing mobile first and we're doing UX as a very serious discipline. That's sort of like the first one. And then from there we went to now it's all about cloud and forget like UX became like commonplace. Everybody has their own UX people and everybody has a mobile app and everyone's designing mobile first. And the next, and so now that's no longer a digital transformation. That's just like table stakes. And the next transformation is how do we get into the cloud? How we got to stop operating data centers. We don't want to do another refresh cycle. We don't want to renew that lease at the data center. Um, we're hearing all this buzz about the, all the different cloud players coming up and launching new services and, Netflix is out there saying that they've moved all into the cloud and Capital One is out there saying they've moved all into the cloud. And so all these things are happening sort of, I guess, circa like 2014, 2015, right, mm -hmm. um, is when it's starting. And so that was the second sort of in my career redefinition of the word. And I think there's nowhere you could go in, in the, by the year 2017 or 18, there's nowhere you could go and say the word transformation and not have it mean something about the cloud, I think. Right. Of course, wrapped up in that was like we have to change the people on our team. We need to 
you know, level them up or we need to bring in different talent or we need to, you know, see who's going to be with us on this journey to the next phase. So there's always other elements. I don't mean to say it's tech centric, but I think tech drives the sort of change. And then I got to experience another one where uh, that was short-lived. I think the IoT one was a bit short-lived. So again, in that same time frame, like 2017, 2016, maybe up through like 2020, it was all about like industry 4.0 or you know, I think it was 3.0 and then it was 4.0. There was no difference. We just kept increasing the number. And we kept wanting to say, we need to digitize everything in our factories, everything in supply chain. And then to make that more confusing, we like threw in like the whole blockchain and crypto thing, which, you know, I think has since kind of fizzled out a bit, but everyone was sure that was going to be the next thing. And so that happened. And then finally, and the wave we're on now is the artificial intelligence one. You know, there's a big sort of the whole the whole world's come together with AI as like the main next step. And it's, you know, it's been in the works for some years, but we're in like the golden age of AI. Um, developments are happening incredibly fast. I think everyone realizes that they should do something in their business to adopt it, but no one's really sure exactly what that something is. And no one's really sure what that means for their workforce or what that means for the future of their business. I think everyone's thinking, oh, I'm going to use it to save money. I'm going to use it to replace jobs. I'm not so sure that's where we're going to end up going. But I do think there's a lot of AI, not just generative AI, but AI in general. That's the current wave of digital transformation. And that's kind of where I'm playing now. Oh, that's good. I love that perspective on that. When you think about it in your business too, because it's a lot of what you guys are doing at Kipsy, it's kind of right place, right time, I feel like. And you definitely are hitting right time for your business. But what do you think it would have looked like three or four years ago? Yeah, I mean, so like, you know, if we back up, the company I'm building now, Kipsy, is focused on computer vision. So this is just one type of AI, but lots of types of AI. But this is the ability for us to kind of infer what's happening in the field of view of, say, a camera and convert that to some useful information that we could reason over and build applications around. So rather than having an unstructured image that we can't do much with, we kind of convert that image in real time to think of it as a little blob of JSON that describes the scene. And the way it describes the scene has been customized by you, the user, to kind of fit a data model that you care about. There's a lot of people doing POCs with AI. There's a lot of people building and tinkering, but I think we're still well in that early adopter. We're having to educate customers every day about how can you leverage this technology to solve a business problem. I think we can say we're at market acceptance and adoption when instead customers understand that they need this tech intuitively to solve a problem. We're not there yet. I'm sure it's right around the corner because it was similar with cloud when people started realizing like, oh, we need to solve our problems by doing X, Y, Z and we should build X, Y, Z. That's when groups like on Gunner Rackspace were saying, hey, we already build X, Y, Z. We've been building it. Let us be your partner since we've been there, done that to help accelerate that. But when you think about the digital transformation journey too, and and maybe being a little bit ahead of full market adoption with what you guys are doing. Do you see that customers need to have followed this progression of adopting mobile first, adopting cloud, adopting initial AI before they can really be successful and take full advantage of all the services that you provide? Or is there a way that they kind of can skip and choose and, and focus on different parts of their digital to still have it be super effective in helping their business? No, I don't think they build on build on each other quite that, that much, right? So I think the tech that's attached to the label transformation is changing each time. It's, it's leveling up, but it's not sequential. You could adopt any of them. The rest of the process, by the way, around transformation, which is people and process and how you incorporate tech into the business, that doesn't change. That's had to be kind of revisited at each of these steps. And so as you adopt AI, you don't just adopt the tech, 
have to figure out the business process and people changes that are required to support the tech as well. Good. And it may be less painful if you had done it the right way earlier on and if your cloud adoption was successful, et cetera could make it easier for this next phase of it, but not required. Yeah, I certainly do think cloud adoption was the toughest one from like a reorganizing teams. And it was like the chance for most uh, adopters to rethink how they organize technology teams, right? Like, and how they reorganize technology processes to go from like kind of slow and bureaucratic processes to more agile, more kind of fail fast, learn fast, move fast. And that means restructuring teams and rules and how you approach security and all these things. And I think if you did all that in the cloud era, then um, you're kind of well positioned to adopt AI now because it's going to require the same kind of changes. I don't, but I don't, I wouldn't strictly say that you have to have adopted cloud. You just have to have adopted the business process changes. So if you've either done that already or you're going to do it now to, to be able to take advantage of, of AI. I think that comes back to your background and why you're successful in this time with what you're doing too, based on your background being heavily around people process and just services in general. Uh, now you've pivoted to being software first, but what was that journey like and where did you see that you learned specific skill sets that have helped you now accelerate your advancements with your own platform today? There's some skill sets that certainly, that certainly translate from the service-centric to the product-centric world, and then there's some that don't. So for example, you know how to build team culture, how to make good hires, how to keep people engaged and motivated, how to communicate with your team, how to expand and scale and grow. That doesn't change that much between the different journeys. And so that's like baseline entrepreneurial building from zero to something experience. And I do think that translates really well. And um, it's a special breed of people that that do that work. And, and it's a tight knit community that supports each other. On the other hand, bootstrapped versus VC backed or bootstrapped versus PE backed. They're all, those are very different. Um, so that's one area of difference we can dive into. And the other is kind of service versus product, right? So Maybe I'll take the latter one first. In the services world, first of all, it's very easy to become profitable because customers pay you for an outcome. You build your team kind of right-sized to deliver for those customers. And hopefully all you got to do is have the next project lined up before the last project ended, right? And then you just keep growing. And if you're charging the right rates, you should be making money kind of the whole way through, right? There's very little overhead, especially at small scale on services. On product, you might have to spend a year or two years building something before anyone pays you a dollar. So the, the, the idea that you're going to be profitable early on is kind of non-existent. And on top of that, even when you're selling, because you're not selling services, you're not selling by the hour, you're pricing your product in a way that probably doesn't pay back the investment you've made or even the ongoing expense you have in the first 100 customers, right? Or 1,000 customers. And so um, it takes a lot of scale and time to get to profitability. And so that does make you uh, think and operate differently. And it can get really uncomfortable switching between those two modalities. Um, I wouldn't say one is easier or harder, but I would say they're, they're very different experiences. And the product one has a lot more danger and sort of chances to, to fall off the happy path, I think, than the services one, where you're, you're pretty aware day by day how that's going. On the other hand, you know, bootstrap versus PE versus VC is another experience that I've had to, to go through. And there's ups and downs to all of it, right? So bootstrapped, you're the ultimate in control of your own destiny. There's no one to tell you what to do or what they think, but you're very limited in resources. You can't really hire ahead or scale you got to kind of wait for the demand and then scale in response to the demand. And it's practically impossible on the product side after, a early, you know, short of a sort early POC to do that. On the services side, maybe it's feasible. As far as like venture-backed goes, which is my latest journey is venture-backed. Venture-backed is a really interesting world that I don't think 
there's enough understanding of from entrepreneurs until they're in it. And so there are unspoken expectations of venture-backed companies that are a year old or two years old or three years old, you know, kind of between how old you are and how much money you've raised kind of creates expectations of what you're going to look like before your next fundraise. And as we discussed, since you can't survive without raising because you've got this kind of cash flow negative product business, it puts you on a, what I would call a hamster wheel, right? And I didn't coin that. Somebody else kind of shared with me that, you know, this VC thing is a hamster wheel. And it's because once you're on it, you can't stop running. You got to keep pace with what's expected at the next fundraise. And you've got, you know, at most kind of two years, maybe two and a half between fundraises, and you better hit the metrics that the next group expects. But those metrics aren't published. They're like this soft understanding. So in one respect, I was surprised at how consistent the metrics are, how every VC more or less will give you the same sort of ideal metrics they're looking for. On the other hand, how unpublished they are. It's like, if they're so standardized, I would love to see like the entrepreneur's guide to the metrics you need at each fundraise. But no one ever shared that with me. And so that's been the, you know, the VC experience is having to like, you're not just having to address the market need and, and address customer need, but you have to recognize that your next set of VCs become a very important stakeholder and you need to meet their expectations as well. And so it gives you another stakeholder besides employees and customers. Now you got a third one, which is future investors um, that you need to deal with. Very interesting. You definitely can't be thinking on a project to project or customer to customer base basis at all in that case then. You have to be thinking two years down the road, what am I going to need? What are my customers going to expect? Where is the market going to be? What's this total addressable market? A lot more data points to take into consideration. Yeah, you got to think about how do you work backwards from the next fundraise metric, which again, I think is a bit unfortunate. Like it would be much better if we could spend all of our time focused on what customers need, but we end up having to focus at least some of our time on what I have to achieve to raise the next round. And it's important that you're ready for that kind of new way of operating as you transition from a bootstrapped business to a VC-backed business. And you know, my advice to listeners who are getting ready to jump out and do this on their own is it would be great to get far enough along that you have an understanding of your target market and have some feel for market fit before you make that leap because it's much easier to sprint forward at the right speed if you have market fit. It's much harder to sprint forward at the right speed if you don't. You're still trying to find it. Interesting. So how yeah. do you balance that freedom of entrepreneurship that is what drives every entrepreneur to actually want to build their own thing with still having to please multiple audiences and multiple different folks that want <laughs> different things from you. Where do you find that, that balance and that and fulfillment even that comes from just needing to think through what other people are expecting of you? Yeah. You know, the customer, so the customer one is easy because as an entrepreneur, you should be into, intuitively aligned with what do your customers want? Like if you're not listening to them, if you're not adapting to what you're hearing from them, then, then you're building a toy for yourself, right? So I think that one is easy. We, I love when customers are driving our agenda forward. As far as um, investors go, the one thing I will say is that VC investors are actually relatively hands-off in a good way. Like you don't tend to find them kind of micromanaging decisions. And so you get a lot of freedom to make decisions in between the fundraises, but you need to hit the metrics at the next fundraise. Now, I am sure there are VCs that are more and less hands-off than my personal experience, but um, I have found there's, there's still a great deal of autonomy. There's just some boundaries and there's certainly some things you're going to have to go and get approval from your board or your investors for, but it's not the daily decisions. And so 
you're still making decisions day by day on how to optimize your sales, how to grow your product, how to organize the team, who to hire, all that stuff. So, which is different, by the way, than the PE backed experience that I had. You know, PE folks are much more in the weeds with you. They are much more detailed on the operations of the business. And there are many more things they expect you to run by them as you go. So I'm not saying that's good or bad, but it's a different experience. So if Bootstrap is the ultimate flexibility and PE is the least flexibility, or perhaps public company, you know, would be the least flexibility, um, VC is somewhere in the middle of that. So let's dive into your favorite of those groups to please, which is your customers. And can you give us an example of a recent engagement where you got to help a customer solve their problems using computer vision? Yeah, so we're finding most interest from customers that are like logistics oriented. So, so like I take a warehouse and think about loading trucks. We're finding that helping customers understand if the right products got on the truck and how many products got on the truck, and perhaps even if the right products got off the truck. Those kind of use cases, or ones where you're looking for maybe product quality. So as a product's moving through the process, is it the right shape and size? Did it get packaged properly? The right labels on it? On the other hand, on the receiving end, when things are coming into the warehouse, um, what product is it? Is it the right product we expected? What order does it correlate to? Where should it go? Um, those kinds of automating those kind of operations using cameras, tracking the objects as they move, and kind of gaining overall insight into the movement of products and goods throughout the space. That's where we see the most immediate ROI. We're also seeing customers want to do like safety. So it says, hey, how do I prevent forklift accidents? Which by the way, you might not know, but forklifts are one of the, the leading causes of injury in the workplace and in these industrial environments. And so reducing forklift injuries is a really significant um, improvement on the safety of these environments. And so you can see those kind of workloads outside of those environments. We see things like monitoring the, the length of a line, how long people are waiting in line, heat mapping of where people spend time inside of an establishment, those kinds of things. So it's really varied, but ultimately if you can convert what the camera sees into data and that data drives some ROI in your business, that's what a good use case looks like for computer vision today. Very cool. I could see it applying to every industry. The example I think of is a nurse or a doctor walking in to visit a patient and just making sure they washed up and they interacted within the patient's room as they should. And it all ties into customer service, really. Yeah, we've definitely seen some hospitals and medical groups kind of starting to poke at that edge. Like, how long has it been since a provider visited this patient? And yeah, did hand washing has come up or falling out of bed, like detecting patients that are fall risks, which again is a, a leading cause of injury. So we're seeing those kind of use cases in medicine as well. Obviously slower uptick in that environment just because healthcare is slower to adopt. But I do think we'll, we'll see more and more of that. You know, I, I think we will see more and more AI making its way into medical devices as well. I think that's, that's an area that's pretty interesting. So how can we use AI to help diagnose or treat, um, you know, at the medical device level? Very cool. So it sounds like these conversations have turned much more business oriented than technology oriented, even when you're talking to your customers. How have you adapted and changed to that? How has that been different than your previous experiences as well? Yeah, I've been much tougher. So in my entire career, I've generally sold and spoken to a technical buyer, right? So if you're migrating to the cloud, that's the CTO or CIO or somebody like that that's leading that initiative. If you're building mobile applications, again, it's, it's a technical kind of conversation. We started this company thinking it was going to be that kind of engagement. And what we've learned is it's not. The folks who benefit from this data are operational folks, pe people that are responsible for 
the logistics or the safety or the efficiency of the plant care about this data. And they're the ones that are most connected to the output of our project together. And so, you know, tech folks are still there to help vet, security guys are there to help vet and all, all that stuff happens. But our buyer and our primary stakeholder has definitely not been technologists. It's been like a VP of operations or a COO or a warehouse manager. And so the change for me has been, we got to communicate much more use case specific language. We can't really communicate like, hey, computer vision is great and we're going to help you with computer vision because that stakeholder has probably never heard the word computer vision. And if they have, they're not sure how it relates to them. But if we go to them and say, we're going to improve the efficiency of your warehouse by detecting if your trucks are loaded properly, that they can relate to right away. And so we're having to communicate much more use case specific, kind of line of business specific language to get attention as opposed to just talking about the tech. What are you seeing and how they've even ever digested that data in the past too? Is this all brand new data points that they're for the first time being exposed to, to make business decisions? Or are there some spreadsheets and some, you know, analog type ways that they've been able to at least start this process? So most customers we run into are, they might be replacing a person or persons with this technology. That's a, I would say that's the minority still. Most of them are replacing a, something that's not happening at all. So the decision isn't like, do we do X or Y? It's we don't do Y at all. And as a result, we ship trucks with the wrong inventory. And so now we need to get, we want to do better at that, right? And so um, they're usually like a net new opportunity, which is great because if you solve it, you're probably finding a net new efficiency, not just replacing one. Very cool. And then you can go serve that product to a whole industry. Yeah. I mean, typically if one customer has a problem, then a lot, then all the other customers that are similarly situated have the same problem. And so that is sort of the mode we're in right now is learning what are those top use cases that, that really translate across a bunch of different customers and then, you know, enhancing our product to make those use cases slam dunks and adapting that or going then to, you know, all the customers that look like that and saying, Hey, we know that you've got a problem like this and here's what, here's how it's solved. Very cool. Helping them see and touch it. I'm sure as that advances is going to be the game changer for really securing that market fit and really seeing scale too. But it's got to also be fun right now in the invention phase and the, Hey, like seeing their eyes realize for the first time, like, whoa, we can get our hands on this data. Whoa, we can you know, pull this camera data to understand X, Y, Z, which equates to you know, the outcome that they want. How is that invention process feeding the innovator within yourself today? It is definitely fun. I mean, to, even though I've, I've been heads down in this tech now for the last couple of years, it's still amazing when you see you know, a net new camera feed come into our platform, uh, some custom out, output come out the other side, and it, it always feels like magic, right? So it's really, really cool to see it in action. There's something about any kind of technology that touches the physical world. So that's why IoT was so interesting because it was like, here's a device and now here's some digital data, right? It's also why like telephony is interesting, like, you know, text messaging or phone calls. It like connects back to people in the real world. And so cameras are the same way. It's like, here's an actual scene from a live view of this environment. And here's some outcome on the other side. And I just think tech that's that tangible is super fun. Very cool. I want to switch gears a little bit now yeah. to the personal side of your success in business, because as long as I've known you, you've been a big team advocate. A lot of your different businesses and engagements have had similar names and faces tied to them. Uh, what has that looked like for you as you've gone through these different journeys of, of building kind of your tribe and finding people that 
are going to be ready for the next adventure that you set, you know, set forth to accomplish? Yeah. Look, I think first of all, you know, building startups, building companies from scratch, an incredibly difficult journey, right? So it'll take all the time you give it. And so first of all, you know, you got to draw some boundaries that, that make it healthy for you because they're, no one else is going to draw the boundary, right? It's, it's going to consume you until you understand how to balance it. But it's also not fun to do alone, right? So I, I think building companies is a team sport. I think doing it in a way that the whole team wins together is much more rewarding personally. So I would rather financially benefit less myself if it meant the rest of the team could financially benefit more. For, and I think that's pretty unique among entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs do tend to be uh, motivated by this large pot of gold at the end of the journey. And of course, I'm not saying that, that, I'm, not, that I'm not, but I think it's a lot more interesting if you can bring your team with you, if those first employees can share in the success, if they have a, not only a great outcome, but a great journey with you as well, right? Ultimately, startups may succeed, they may fail, but the journey is half of the point, right? So how do we take care of our teams? How do we build teams that work well together? How do we give them the space to thrive? How do we make sure that people are growing in their careers along the way and pushing themselves and being challenged? How do we build a sense of like a belonging within the company so that people just feel like they're part of a family? You know, I know that's like cliche, but I don't mean it in the cliche way. I just mean like, I want, you spend a lot of time at work. I want it to be a pleasant eight hours a day or actually realistically, you know, 12 hours a day that you're spending at work. And so um, I really do think, uh, making good decisions on who you hire, building high-performing teams, and making sure people are rewarded, especially those people that are there early are rewarded, is super important. Tolga, now I want to get your perspective around principles. And for you specifically, what's been a guiding principle that you've lived by to be successful in business? I think it's treat people fairly, whether that's customers, whether it's investors, whether it's employees, in fact, most importantly, employees. I think it's being doing right by, by everybody along the way. So success is not fun when it's lonely. I think success is much more fun when it's a team activity, when we all do it together. And so um, I, I really believe in a fair, balanced approach to how teams are built, how they're compensated, how they're re rewarded. Um, and so I think that'd be my key principle is it's not worth winning if that means that you took advantage of people along the way. I think it's worth winning if you brought them along with you. Yeah, that's something I experienced firsthand in the Onka Rackspace days too, is something as simple as like a win wire. It's funny how some companies just miss that, like let's stop and celebrate a win together. And the way that we made it fun with gifts and everybody in the company was involved in, you know, 100K sales win mm -hmm. was just amazing for culture and getting people personally invested in the success of their peers within the business. Yeah, I mean, the culture there was probably like, you know, probably world-class, the best, the best I've experienced in my career. And- everyone was on the same mission, kind of building this great company. It was, it was super fun. And my goal in life is to do that every time. Very cool. Well, Tolga, this has been so much fun. Thank you for joining us today. And we're really excited to see what you continue to do with Kipsy. Great. Thanks for having me. It was a great time.